0: Hello and welcome to Here Now, a Whitechapel Gallery podcast that delves into the stories behind the exhibitions on view at the gallery here in the heart of East London. Each episode invites a curator to be in conversation with artists, collaborators and other thinkers about the works and themes explored in the displays, giving you special access to the ideas that shape the artworks. My name is Jane Scarth, Curator of Public Programs, introducing you to today's episode featuring Whitechapel Gallery curator Laura Smith in conversation with artist Simone Fatale about her new commission at the Gallery, her first solo presentation in the UK, a ceramic environment in which elements of an ancient landscape appear throughout the space alongside her characteristic ceramic figures, embarking on a spiritual and physical metamorphosis. The exhibition, Finding a Way, is free to view in Gallery 2 and is on display from the 21st of September 2021 until the 15th of May 2022.
1: Hello everyone, my name is Laura Smith and I am one of the curators at Whitechapel Gallery and I am thrilled to be talking today with Simone Fatal whose exhibition just opened in our commissions gallery at Whitechapel. So, I thought we'd start this conversation with talking about how your thoughts for the commission came about,
2: Simone. Well, it was. Um, it took some time for me to find the actual subject of the commission because uh, uh, a commission is not always what you you were expecting to do or what goes into the flow of your work. You have to pause and actually decide for a body of work that would be a whole statement of its own. And you have to think about the place it's going to be in. And I think the Whitechapel Gallery space is a wonderful big space. So um, And... Um, There were some um, elements that could not be moved, so I had to work around it. So I had many, many ideas until I found the actual plot, if I can say, that I followed to to do what I am showing here. Um, The pandemic was one element of my thinking because people... During these two years, it's practically two years that people have been shocked and um, relegated to their homes and they had to think over their lives. Really, many, many people wanted to change what was they were doing and where they were living and how they were doing all that. So my focus was to actually... Uh, it's going to be grand, but it's like a, the human condition. You are in a, in a, on a way, on a journey in your life, and whatever happens on the way, you have to go on, and you have to find whatever can help to do this. And so I devised uh, the body of work that you can see.
1: <laughs> and the exhibition is called "Finding a Way." And when you enter it, you see five figures, the the biggest works in the exhibition are five new figures, four made of ceramic and one made of bronze, embarking on a journey. Could you tell us a bit about the title and the journey that they are on?
2: Yes, so to express that personal journey that every one of us has to do, I am devised a a procession. It's like many, the the five figures represent all of us, one or many, um, and we can identify with their quest. It's not really a quest for something like a career or a better way. No, it's a quest for being yourself, finding yourself. So the four men are advancing and I put on both sides of this procession a few elements that will accompany them which are in their psyche, like um, the ziggurat, for instance. I put a ziggurat because it's represented in Babylon not only the temple of the gods, but the... uh, link between earth and sky. And when you reach the top, you could see yourself. Mm-hmm. And that was like know yourself before the Greeks. And this, this symbol, I thought, was important because actually this is what the uh, installation is about. Know yourself. Mm-hmm. Know yourself and go on
1: so their journey is a spiritual journey as well as a physical one
2: yes where well, it's that's what we do mm-hmm. i mean everything you do in life is both spiritual and physical mm-hmm. you can't take away soul from from body and uh, and uh, vice versa you know there's always been this uh, discussion about body and soul. It's a stupid discussion. We are one. Mm-hmm. One doesn't exist without the other. We haven't seen the soul going up there. Probably it will, but you know, we are here. This is what I want to say. We are here and we have to go on and we have to find help on the way. And the help cannot come except from your, from your own thing, mm-hmm. from your own self.
1: Another of the elements that the figures are walking past or that exists in their psyche are the stelae, the carved standing stones or architectural pillars. Could you talk about those?
2: Yes, the stelae, it's something which um, has always interested me in my work. I have done quite a few because I see them um, in archaeological sites, I see them. In, in with in, inside the city, there's always marks, landmarks, uh, moments of uh, memories. You know, here you have plaque on buildings, saying this happened there, this happened there, and the stèle represents this, mm-hmm. and they are written on. There's a, a one which is octagonal, is um, exactly. A copy of an Assyrian one that exists at the British Museum, and it's all written on it. So people like to write from the beginning of times, mm-hmm. so they could put their mark and people could remember what they were, how they were, mm-hmm. why, what they were doing. In this case, I chose to write representations of the cosmos, the translation into a little ideogram mm-hmm. into a square or a writing or a sentence it's uh, landmarks on the way mm-hmm. and uh, also you remember what's written I- in there mm-hmm. like a talisman can work for you you know you have a, you wear your loved one's hair around mm-hmm. your neck or his latest little uh, uh, love letter, but in this case, you know, it's things you want to remember. Mm-hmm.
1: Speaking of memories, you've also included in the exhibition some etchings, which are not new works, but they were commissioned a couple of years ago by Sebastian Dello, different, a different commission, but you chose to include them here, and they're based on your memories of Damascus, which is where you were born.
2: Yes, I wanted to include them because, um, well, I identify with those <laughs> men. I put what I have in my own psyche, which is, of course, the city of Damascus where I was born. And that commission, again, was completely free. Sebastian Delo did not ask me to do anything on a theme that was prescribed. So it came to me that I will be doing those etchings as plans of the city of Damascus. Um, I had seen this exhibit in the Louvre about etchings of the 17th century, where the engraver, the artist, had to represent exactly the city planning, the walls surrounding the city for military purposes. So they were, had to be exact, and they ran like rectangular shapes around the walls. Mm-hmm. They were very long. Mine are, are not so long. I went as far as I could that the press could take. And I... it's It was a very interesting exercise to actually uh, represent what you remember and trying to be exact at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so the elements of architecture put together um, and um they they represent Damascus mm-hmm. exactly not, but <laughs> <laughs> what you th- the idea of it this is what abstract art is about. it's so interesting because it represents the idea of everything mm. and it summarizes it. And presents it in a way that you can decipher easily mm-hmm. because it talks to you without encumbering with uh, details and uh, things that you don't need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the etchings they feel um,
1: they feel at the same time very personal, but uh, also available to everybody yes. and and quite powerful for that.
2: Thank you. Yeah, there's the entrance to Damascus where you had gardens on one side and the river on the other. It doesn't exist so much today, but uh, um, it was famous for that. The hill overlooking the city, where it was a ritual for people who visited the city to go up there to look upon the city from that hill. And that was... A site that was uh, uh, talked about in poems and uh, praised for its beauty because Damascus is an oasis and it was surrounded with gardens, with uh, orchards. Mm-hmm. And this was so beautiful to see, you know, it was small, of a small city. When I was a, y- a young girl, there were only 300,000 people living in Damascus. Today you have 8 million. Mm-hmm or seven, or, mm-hmm. it's tremendous. And those gardens have been partly destroyed yeah. because of you know urban development. Mm-hmm. I thought, why don't they keep this ring of orchards yeah. and build beyond, you know, in the desert? Mm-hmm. People don't do that, you know, usually. <laughs> anyway, so these are reminiscences, and um, you try to get the essence of a place.
1: Mm-hmm. Speaking of orchards and gardens, the figures in your exhibition are walking towards one central point. What is that?
2: Yeah, it's like, you know, when you have a, a, a in architecture, you have a point which holds the whole um, architecture. The whole, the, I chose to make it a flower. Uh, somebody said it's the f- rose of Damascus. <laughs> But uh, I didn't really think that it was only the Rose of Damascus. But the flower, you have many epics and many stories about it. One of them being the the, the epic of Gilgamesh, where after the death of his friend, he wants to look for eternity, for immortality. So and he heard that someone had lived forever, so he goes to see him, and he, there was a flower there. He said, "Well, if I could only catch the flower, I will live forever." And as soon as he came three, near, the flower disappeared. It's eaten by a serpent. <laughs> so I want this flower to be there all forever.
0: <laughs> For everyone, That's why I
2: put it. there. The, the flower is what we want to live. Alive after we pass away. And it's this beauty, this uh, nature uh, that we want to keep going forever. So immortality, in that sense, we have to give it to nature. To pass it back. Yes. Just changing the subject slightly, although
1: not really, to the side room of the exhibition, we have a reading room uh, where you have selected some books that have influenced you or inspired you and I know how important reading is to you. Could you tell us a little bit about the books you've selected and why literature and poetry is so important
2: to your work? I've always been an avid reader ever since I was small. And I find the epics... Uh, to be what talks so much wonderfully well about a culture. When you enter a civilization, you enter through their epics. Uh, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey are universal doors to to thinking, to knowing, to history, to poetry. And... Um, I put there the tale of Genji because when I read it, I had an enormous uh, joy to discover the real um, civili- Japanese civilization, which I, you don't know a thing about. I, I, it just blew my mind. And then you have I just dis- I chose classics, really, that I'm sure everybody has read or want to read, like uh, War and Peace, Dostoevsky. I put a very great book by Baldwin, Fire Next Time. chose two or three Arabic novels, Cities of Salt and uh, Migration to the North, and um, Poetry comes before epic and it sustains the epic. Mm-hmm. Poetry is, it's like um, abstract art, you know. It tells you a lot through just one sentence. You have these glimpses on the subconscious, on the beauty. It summarizes the whole knowledge of, of, that you should have. Mm-hmm. Um, and poetry is quick. The people today want something very quick. So <laughs> <laughs> actually, in one sentence, boom—you you have a a lot, a lot uh, of um, things to think about. And to recite poetry was also recited. People mm-hmm. knew it by heart. It doesn't need any support. That's also where the book has um, literature mm-hmm. rather has is superior to art in the way that it doesn't need support. Mm-hmm. You can learn it by heart. You don't have to, A work of art, you have to come and see it. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't seen it, you haven't seen it. But the book travels on its own. It's uh, magical. And you can't stop it. Can't stop it. No.
1: <laughs> I think your... Uh, the commission feels very poetic. It feels... It feels like a poem with the elements being different structures of language um, and the, the climax of the rose is a very poetic climax. Was that intentional or is that...
2: No, the poetry was not intentional. The, I... I think the poetry is a gift that comes through or comes after what you want to say. I was focused on what I wanted to say. And of course the elements, if they are beautiful, I tried to make them beautiful, um, contain poetry. It's The rose is a real focus, but you have also an angel who can always, we think we have an angel (laughs) on our shoulder walking with us, telling us what to do, or watching over us Mm -hmm. and and helping. And you have um, clouds, because when you walk in the desert, it's really... What you see in the sky—that counts. There's nothing. It's the the stars and the the clouds are very important. So I made the clouds, and um, that's all the elements now. And And a a centaur,
1: and a tree, and a centaur. Yeah,
2: and the centaur is really a a recurring figure in my work. I don't know why I like this figure. I've done quite a few. This one is small, but um, it also has a color that I had never used before, which is indigo. Um, the, the centaur is really a man. He's half horse, half man, but it's really a man trying to to get to the sky.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Usually he has an arch and... Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so, so these men carry all these elements in their psyche yep. while they're walking their journey on this earth,
1: <laughs> in
2: this life.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the practicalities of, of how you make the works because we were talking the other day about how I don't know any other sculptor who can make ceramics of the scale that you do Standing on two feet without falling over, it's quite an accomplishment. And they are very heavy and have the mark of your hands all over them, which is beautiful. So could you just talk to us about how, how you make them and how they don't fall over?
2: <laughs> the first thing I did when I started doing ceramics was a standing figure, a standing man uh, on his two feet without any support which is very rare. Usually, the, the artist will start with the support and he will put the legs on it to make it stand. And I, I didn't want any of that intermediary between the man and the earth he's standing on because man is a standing animal. Mm-hmm. This is what his definition is. Before thinking or anything, before he started thinking, he got up. So I try to make, I start with the legs and I start to, and I build my figure and of course it's it's always going to fall over. So I work a lot on uh, on it to find the point of equilibrium where it will stand on its own. And my figures do stand on their own, even the small one, the middle one, the big one. Um, So I build my figure with my hands, of course, and when I need reach that point of equilibrium, I leave the standing figure alone because if I touch it again, it will crumble. So you have always the traces of my hands on it because I can't go back and smooth it. It's impossible. (laughs) So... And many of them, when because when they dry, they become so brittle, and when you hold them to take them to the kin, mm-hmm. quite a few also fall. They don't survive. They don't survive. Um, and so you, you will always find the traces of my hands on the pieces. Uh, and then they started growing higher. It's The height came because I worked in a kiln. I worked with a ceramist, Hans Spinner. When I went to see him in grass, I said, how high is your kiln? I never, I didn't want to, I wanted to take advantage mm-hmm. of my time there. I didn't know I was could go back. Yeah. So I said, I'll go as high as I can. And my first two pieces there were two figures One meter fifty each, because that was the height of the Mm kiln, and um, I loved doing that uh, height. And someone actually wrote on my work as saying, Usually, clay is flat on the earth, Mm -hmm. you know, and you use it to do pots, or even uh, pots, they don't they're not so high, Um, so you make it stand up. Then I started. One meter fifty. It was the biggest I have done. In this exhibit, there's one that is one meter fifteen. Yeah. Um, I, I like tall men, <laughs> 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 and not only that. It started also with the, uh, Islamic um, mysticism, mm-hmm. where Adam is portrayed as a very tall man. Mm-hmm. He was a tall man. And so I tried to figure... I, I made Adam, this is my first piece, uh, Adam with very long legs. Yeah. And that impacted all the other mm-hmm. men, uh, to have long legs to make them look very tall. But I really work on the torso because then when I get there... I find that I have to give it the idea of the person I want to represent. Mm-hmm. It all came from this idea of Adam, and all the other uh, gods and heroes had the same form, but they 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 vary because I I try to put there the qualities mm-hmm. I think I know of Dionysus, for instance, or Agamemnon, yeah. or. And that's something I wanted to ask you about is,
1: so your figures often have, they, their titles take the names of heroes or famous warriors or kings or queens when they're women. Why do you use these archetypes?
2: I use the archetype to make them available to most, to everybody, because everybody can relate to a god or relate to the king, Mm -hmm. or a hero they have heard about. They don't relate to their neighbor. They don't relate to the the guy across the street. It it doesn't interest them. And I want them to embody more the idea of what these heroes represented, because they also relate, they also are within the environment uh, of their their birth, you know, I feel that if you say King Agamemnon, for instance, well, you immediately see Greece, you see the Iliad, you see the whole environment. If I say Gilgamesh, you you hear the whole story. And I I like, I want that, you know. I don't want the piece to represent itself only Mm -hmm. as a beautiful or not beautiful uh, piece. I wanted to make people ponder and look at it and make them dream. Or um, mm-hmm. I don't know if I <laughs> if I succeed. But uh, they want. I want them to represent more than themselves. Mm-hmm. This is why they have, like all the other, the, you know, playwrights, like. Uh, Shakespeare or uh, any any old, the Greek mm-hmm. tragedies, they all spoke about heroes. Mm-hmm. It is in that sense that I use them.
1: So they become like an example for people? Yes,
2: not so much anymore as an example because uh, it's memory mm. and it's uh, imagination rather. Okay. I want to talk to their imagination, yeah. Thank you, Simone. It's been
1: a
0: privilege working with you.
2: Thank you, Laura, and with you. I'm very happy, very grateful too.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Here Now. You can find all of our other episodes online at www.whitechapelgallery.org on the Bloomberg Connects app, as well as iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and SoundCloud. Don't forget to visit the exhibition Simone Fatale Finding A Way on display from the 21st of September 2021 until the 15th of May 2022. Bye for now.